0: Welcome to the EM Cases podcast. Anton Hellman here. Now, before we get started on the 79th EM Cases episode on pediatric asthma, I'm stoked to remind you that the second in our series of free interactive ebooks will be released at North York General's Emergency Medicine Update Conference on May 4th, and it'll be available for free download on the EM Cases website after that. A team of 15 people have spent the better part of the year curating all the best stuff of all the pediatric em cases podcasts to create this thing of educational beauty the other announcement is that my friend rob rogers MedEd guru of the teaching institute kindly invited me to partner up with them to bring you the first ever medical education podcasting, podcasting course. course check out www.thepodcastingcourse.com if you're interested in podcasting Now about our guest experts on pediatric asthma. Dr. Sanjay Mehta is an emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto and an assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. He received his MD at the University of Calgary and his Master's of Education and Pediatric Emergency Medicine Fellowship at the University of Toronto. Dr. Dennis Skolnick is a pediatric emergency physician at the Hospital for Sick Children in Toronto as well, and an associate professor in the Department of Pediatrics at the University of Toronto. Now, most of the kids we see with asthma are pretty straightforward, but even for the straightforward ones, there's some finesse in how we can manage them. And for the really sick ones, there's a lot of controversy over what works and what doesn't. In this episode, with the help of Dr. Sanjay Mehta and Dr. Dennis Skolnick, we'll cover risk assessment, the value of VBGs, indications for chest x-rays, using MDIs versus NEBs, how to best give steroids, discharge criteria, IV and nebulized MAG, ketamine, Heliox, high-flow nasal oxygen, BiPAP, and a whole lot more. A 10-year-old boy with a history of asthma is triaged to your acute area of your ED with a 7-day history of shortness of breath on exertion. Today, during recess at school, he suddenly became more short of breath and didn't have his inhaler as he ran out of it the day prior. EMS was called and the child came to your ED. On arrival, he appears alert but tachypneic with nasal flaring and neck retractions. He's able to speak in single word phrases. His respiratory rate is 40, heart rate 140, oxygen saturation 88% on room air, and his temp is 37.4. His chest is silent. So this patient doesn't present such a diagnostic dilemma, but it might be a bit challenging to assess how severe their asthma exacerbation is. Dr. Mehta, what else do you want to know on history to determine how severe or worried you should be about this 10-year-old boy?
1: Well, I think it's important to realize that regardless of the history, you've got a patient who needs intervention. It is interesting to get a sense on history if there are any markers for this particular patient that may help guide the likelihood of response to the treatments I'm going to offer. So I definitely want to know about previous exacerbations and if any of them required hospitalization, especially ICU admission. And intubation, which would be a, a very poor prognostic factor, um, deterioration while on steroids. In other words, the likelihood that this is a steroid non-responder. Um, will it influence my management? The frequency of use of beta agonists, the sense of brittleness of the asthma for this patient, and how frequently they're having to present for medical attention, whether it be to a clinic or the eMERGE. and. Importantly, any comorbidities that might influence um, their management. So, cardio, pulmonary, you know, psychiatric, I guess, from the response to the steroids. Um, any side effects that they've had from the medications. Their involvement in a respiratory clinic or an asthma um, doctor also gives me a sense that they're a higher risk candidate. So, some of the
0: severity indicators in review here are a previous life-threatening exacerbation, admission to ICU previous intubation, deterioration while already on systemic steroids, using more than 2 canisters of short-acting beta agonists per month, and associated cardiopulmonary or psychiatric comorbidities. Now it's important to realize that a lack of risk factors does not necessarily confer a lack of risk. So even if a patient has none of these risk factors, they can still be at risk for badness from their asthma and dr skolnick what else would you want to know on physical and history to help you distinguish asthma from asthma mimics like airway foreign body pneumonia tracheomalacia or gerd for example
2: well in each of those cases um history is not uh, completely foolproof but the important thing to remember is to ask the relevant history Has there been a choking episode, older siblings feeding younger siblings in the case of bronchiolitis to take into account the season of the year, the age of the patient, contacts, um, atopic history in the family, atopic history in the child, presence of fever, presence of noisy breathing when the child's well, uh, association with feeds, with lying supine. So, I think the trick is to remember that there is a differential and to have that differential at your fingertips and to be able to ask the two or three relevant questions that angle you towards or against those possibilities. The danger would be not remembering to ask at all, for instance, about foreign body uh, or not looking at uh, the temperature. That could lead you into
0: deep water. So the idea here is... You know that kid that comes in who's got a history of asthma and he's here for the 12th time with his so-called usual asthma? You still have to keep your differential wide. You always have to think about the possibility of an airway foreign body. Ask about it on history and look for unilateral signs. Other things in the differential include GERD, tracheomalacia, pneumonia, and bronchiolitis. Dr. Mehta, There's a clinical decision rule or risk scale for almost everything in emergency medicine now, and asthma is not an exception to that. What is the utility of clinical assessment tools or risk scales for predicting severity and response to treatment in pediatric asthma? For example, there's the PRAM or Pediatric Respiratory Assessment Measure, which includes variables like suprasternal indrawing, scalene retractions, wheezing, air entry, O2SAT, and these help us categorize mild, moderate, and severe pediatric asthma. There's also the Pediatric Asthma Severity Score, which includes three items only, which is wheezing, prolonged expiration, and work of breathing – What do you think of these scores in terms of their usefulness in predicting severity, how aggressive they should be treated, and disposition?
1: So I used to not like these sorts of scores, especially for asthma, because I felt that it took away a certain subjective sense. Over time, I've learned that the side effects of using these tools, not only because they make your assessment of these patients more objective, is that they allow you to feel like you can initiate a more standardized approach to their care in a more predictable and consistent fashion. In other words, it doesn't necessarily have to be us as clinicians who are using these scores to initiate care. We have um, seen a lot of benefits from order sets and clinical practice guidelines where the triage or the early responders can do a pediatric respiratory assessment measurement score or a pediatric asthma severity score, the PRAM, the PASS, and uh, use quite clear-cut guidelines and objective criteria to gauge how severe a patient's asthma is. We know that these scores are very useful. They do have good construct validity, and they do reliably assess the severity of, uh, of acute asthma exacerbations in pediatrics. Um, if you don't remember the scores, have them printed, have them posted, put them on the back of your order set, keep them on your smartphone. I don't think you should get hung up on the numbers, A lot of these titrate well to mild, moderate, severe. I think it's relatively easy to manage the mild, and it's pretty straightforward what to do with the severe. It's the moderate group where I think there's the most use. And most importantly, if you're in an academic center where there's a lot of turnover of trainees and residents, it just enables everyone to get on board with a common approach to seeing these kids. So I I like the scores. Um, In our particular center, we use the PRAM score for any child over age two, and um, history of wheeze or or asthma to really gauge not just the pre-assessment, but also the ongoing response to therapy. It basically enhances communication
2: and puts people onto the same page. But for the individual experienced clinician, what's essential is to know what goes into making the score. I always use the analogy, I to this day don't remember the GCS adaptation for children. But I do remember you've got to think about what happens with the eyes what happens with the limbs and what happens with the mouth? So I can just say the patient screamed when I pinched them, punched me, whatever it would be, and someone else can figure the score. So for the experienced clinician, it tells you what to think about. For all of us together, communication communicating is a huge team. It puts us on the same page to be able to communicate effectively and, and more accurately.
0: Great. So we'll have the PRAM score and the pass score on the written summary, as well as the Agile MD app for your smartphone. Dr. Skolnick, I see a lot of physicians using peak expiratory flow in the emergency department to assess the asthmatic when they come in, to assess them after they've had some NEBS, to assess them before discharge. What is the role of peak expiratory flow in assessing the severity of asthma, confirming your diagnosis, and assessing the response to treatment? How do you suggest we use it in the ED, and what are some easy numbers to remember for normal cutoffs?
2: First of all, children below the age of seven or eight don't really have a hope of giving you an accurate reading. So the earliest that you could consider using it as a as an, a cut, an end point would be children older than that age group. The other thing is that in children, the diagnosis of asthma is not based on lung function tests. It's really based on having several episodes of wheeze, usually three or more, which have responded to beta-2 agonist. And that's our working diagnosis of asthma. So we don't actually rely on this measure. So summary, I would use it for older children, especially children where things aren't quite adding up. The teenager who's professing to severe shortness of breath and I'm just not seeing the signs. Sometimes you can use a good Fluorate or FEV1 to convince yourself that it's actually safe to send them even though they say they're really sick. But I don't use it that often otherwise.
1: Yeah, the only addition is that I I tend to use it in the older child where it's their first presentation of wheeze. So I wonder why at the age of nine, they haven't had multiple episodes and they come in with wheezing. It just gives me a sense of gauging. and, And I think it's a good tool to get them started on when they're discharged for ongoing use as well. But I agree in pediatrics, most of our patients can't coordinate until they're older. And most of the time, it's a clinical diagnosis anyways. So although Dr. Mehta
0: and Dr. Skolnick don't use peak expiratory flow in their practices too often, you can use the peak expiratory flow to help exclude asthma mimics. An improvement by 15% or more in peak expiratory flow after bronchodilator therapy is very suggestive of reactive airways disease or asthma in children. And it's, again, most reliable in children 10 years and older. Now, in adults, we sometimes use peak expiratory flow to help us make disposition decisions. So if someone blows over, say, 300 and they're looking pretty good, that's usually good enough for us to say they're safe to go home. But in kids, it's different. And one cautionary thing is that you should never use peak expiratory flow to be the sole determinant of severity or the sole determinant for discharge in kids. Next, we're going to hear what our guest experts have to say about the use of VBG in kids with asthma. So we've talked about clinical assessment tools and the value or lack thereof of a peak expiratory flow. Dr. Mehta, what about blood gases in pediatric asthma? What's the utility of a venous gas, for example, in pediatric asthma?
1: So I think it's a, it's an adjunctive piece of data. It's a useful confirmation to how you feel, things are going with your patient. We don't tend to do arterial blood gases as commonly in kids as in as in adults. Um, if you have access to respiratory therapists and they can do a finger poke, uh, we sometimes use capillary gases. The venous blood gases are, are probably adequate. Uh, basically, it it works out that the higher the PaCO two is, the more likelihood that there's an impending uh, respiratory failure and the lower the bicarb and the lower the pH, in other words, the worse the metabolic acidosis is, the further up the creek you are. In other words, you're basically dealing with a potential impending respiratory slash cardiac arrest. We wouldn't regularly recommend monitoring these gases for the majority of patients in the eMERGE department um, unless there was no clinical response or improvement and you're maximizing all the various therapy against these patients Um, it's more for measuring those patients who have a a bit of a, a respiratory acidosis some hypercapnia and you are sending them to the icu and you want to get a sense of the baseline so it very rarely gives me information up front at the bedside that I probably wouldn't have been able to gauge clinically anyways and if I'm doing it it's in the context of blood work to look at the potassium and the hemoglobin white count etc for a patient that's going to be an inpatient or going to the unit it is important to remember that a normal co2 shouldn't give you false reassurance um it has to always be taken into the clinical context. So if you have extreme tachypnea retractions, the CO2 could be dropping, and that could actually be a bad marker that there's going to be um, impending ventilatory failure. So blood
0: gases and pediatric asthma are actually pretty rarely indicated unless the patient has no clinical improvement with maximal aggressive therapy. And the timing is important, too. It may be the most useful as a baseline after ED treatment in a patient who's going to the ICU. Also, remember the classic teaching that a normal CO2 in a patient with extreme tachypnea and retractions could actually indicate impaired ventilation and impending respiratory failure. Now, for those of you who like numbers, some rough numbers are a PaCO2 of greater than 42 is usually indicative but not diagnostic of a severe exacerbation, and a PaCO2 of greater than 50 is a risk factor for impending respiratory failure. But just as Dr. Meadow was saying, when trying to decide which kids to intubate, it's really more of a clinical decision than a numbers decision. Next, Dr. Scholling is going to talk about the indications for chest X-ray in presumed pediatric asthma. (music)
2: Every Weezer should have one X-ray as a baseline in their life, but not otherwise. So now if I know this child's a Weezer and he's coming to the eMERGE and there were no red flags raised by his one X-ray perhaps earlier in his life, and even that might be up for debate, um, not part of my routine practice. If you throw me that he's got a fever or that he's got focal findings, uh, or I think he might have a foreign body, Or he might have uh, popped the pneumothorax, which you can usually get a little bit from history and exam, history of choking, I've mentioned, then those are things to do it for, but not the routine wheezer.
0: So it turns out that the rate of chest x ray use in kids with asthma has increased significantly since the mid 90s. Although it's not unreasonable for first time wheezers to get a baseline chest x ray, it's important to realize. That an unsuspected diagnosis made on the basis of chest x-ray in an acutely wheezing child is rare, even if the child has never wheezed before. In fact, there are no set of predictors in the literature that can accurately identify children likely to have abnormalities on chest x-ray. Nonetheless, some of the situations that might warrant a chest x-ray in a child with a wheeze, as Dr. Skolnick outlined, are focal chest findings, fever, fever, Subcutaneous emphysema, or a history of choking. Now, this might be a good time to pause the podcast and review before we go on to the treatment of asthma in the ED in kids. <laughs> Let's move on to the treatment of asthma. We've got our 10-year-old boy who came in via ambulance who's in moderate respiratory distress, a respiratory rate of 40, heart rate of 140, O2 sats 88% on room air, with a temp of 37.4 and a silent chest. So he's placed on oxygen and a monitor and the nurse asks you what meds you want to give. So, Dr. Mehta, let's start with beta agonists. Salbutamol in Canada albuterol or leave albuterol in the US, do you recommend beta agnes via NEBS or via MDI with a spacer? And what dosing would you recommend for each?
1: So we used to use um, nebulized therapy for the majority of our asthmatics and RED. And um, over time, we learned and the data continues to show that number one, nebulizers and MDIs are pretty equivalent in their response and, and the general management of asthmatics. And there's actually some data suggesting the MDIs are arguably better. Um, there's many practical issues around MDIs. If you teach a patient who's wheezing for the first time or you have an opportunity to re-educate them on the use of the MDI with the spacer, it's nice to be able to do it on the same thing that they're going to be using at home versus nebulizers in hospital and then home on MDIs sends a different message to families. Um, the second issue is the time, which is a huge practical value in, in pediatrics. A nebulizer can take 10 to 20 minutes to give one treatment versus an MDI can take three to five minutes depending on the dose to administer. So it uh, improves the efficiency of the experience and the resource and personnel use. Um, there are dosing issues. Traditionally, a lot of um, maintenance Ventolin doses have been used for acute asthma exacerbations, which is inappropriate. So we know that when you're in the middle of a bad attack, you do need higher deposition. And when they do radiolabeling studies, they realize that you can't use a one-dose-suits-all approach. So for little kids under 15 kilos, we tend to use uh, four puffs of Ventolin via MDI. If you are using nebulizer, that works out to 2.5 milligrams put into two to three cc's of saline. For anyone older than 15 kilos, uh, we usually recommend eight puffs of venolin uh, MDI, which is about the same as five milligrams nebulized with two or three cc's of saline. It's, it's startling to some people when they see a little one-year-old who's a bit chubby um, but is still under 15 kilos getting four puffs. And even more um, challenging for certain people who aren't used to it to see a two- or three-year-old who might be over 15 kilos um, getting eight puffs. But it's all about the deposition. It's all about the dose needed for management versus the age.
2: And that might be three
1: back-to-back, which, you know, really can, can
2: look like a lot. If the child's volume of respiration is so shallow that they can't really take in what you present in the spacer. That is the one time that you might actually have to default to a nebulizer. So in very small children, three, four, five months, you might default to a nebulizer. And in the extremely sick patients, you might default to a nebulizer because if it's on for that 20 minutes, it gives them a chance to get some of the drug in. Basically, in a kid as sick as the one you've presented, whilst we're fiddling, I put on a nebulizer, of Ventolin. If they c- can move some air, I would then try my
0: MDI with spacer. Next, we're going to talk about whether to administer NEBs or MDIs continuously or intermittently. So can you give them repeatedly? Yes. Uh, our Using our PRAM
2: score that we've talked about earlier, if a kid's got a PRAM score of eight or more, i.e. is uh, at the probable severe asthmatic, they need either continuous nebulizations, which means three in a row, which could be an hour. But as Sanjay said, rather give them eight puffs three times in a row. So that's shake, it, insert, squeeze, give the child three or four breaths, and you're doing that eight times. And then you're doing that three times over. That's what we would say are equivalent. But the sick child, you, you, you're you going to give them beta 2 agonist almost continuously until you introduce your other uh, modalities as well.
0: Because let me just get that clear for physicians like myself who aren't too familiar with using the MDI, MDI and spacer, you're giving eight puffs in a row, and then immediately you're giving another eight puffs in a row, and, and then another, another eight, eight puffs. Puff. So you're giving 24 puffs back to back to back to back to back to back in those kids who... And we
2: might be able to do that in as little as 10 or 12 minutes.
0: Wow! So and what, their edible. heart rate goes to three hundred and forty. I'll
2: stop. I'll <laughs> stop giving beta to agonist when it hits two hundred. If it's one hundred and ninety, I keep going because children's hearts are healthier than adults.
1: Yeah. So for me, it's all about dealing with the prime issue. If the lungs are the main issue, the heart rate is going to be fast, but children can compensate, they don't decompensate very easily. And we're presuming that this is a non-cardiac healthy patient who has asthma, they should be able to handle that tachycardia because we know that the t half or the duration of effect is going to be limited and not every patient gets significant tachycardia i find a lot of them get to a certain level and then they just stay at that tachycardia level they don't continue to increase as you would jokingly say all the way up to 340 what what i tell parents is when they say Oh, look at his pulse i
2: say thank goodness it means the drug's on board well done let's keep going you know, cause in fact, have to say that to some residents and nurses too.
1: But just to add to the age and the situations where you wouldn't. Yeah, I agree. I think I wouldn't use it under six weeks, six to eight weeks, because I feel that the coordination is challenging and their shallow breaths just at baseline. And obviously, if they're sick in addition, or any patient who's sick, where you're thinking that they might need non-invasive ventilation strategies, etc., are the patients that I would save the nebulizers. But the majority of patients, we're talking 90 95%, I'm using MDIs.
2: And you can actually tell if it's working. Uh, once you've um, got the seal on the face, there's a little duck-billed-looking uh, valve that you can um, see through the clear plastic. I think they're always made like that. And you can actually see if the valve is opening with the child's inspiration. So if you've got a good seal and it doesn't open, it ain't working. They're too shallow.
0: So for those kids who are too sick or too young to adequately get the timing right with the MDI, you're going to be using NEBS. That brings up the option of IV beta agonists. Is there any role for IV beta agonists in pediatric asthma?
1: There is some data, and it's usually in a comparative study that it's found that it's not of benefit compared to inhaled, but there isn't great data to suggest that it's not useful in the severe cases where they failed everything. So our go-to after everything has failed is IV mentolin, but we never think of it upfront. A lot of that also stems from the pediatric experience where IV is considered invasive. So you're not even getting to IV. It may be very different in the adult world, but in pediatrics, if you're needing an IV for asthma, you're already in a different category of illness. And that's because you've already failed the um, previous measures, which would include obviously inhaled beta-2 agonists, Atrovent that we're going to talk about, steroids. Um, IV magnesium would be something I would go to before I would go to IV beta-agonists.
0: Okay. We had talked a little bit about the side effects of beta-agonists when we were talking about tachycardia. Dr. Skolnick, are there any other side effects of beta agonists that you would look out for in the emergency department?
2: The renowned uh, hypokalemia, I've seen guidelines that say you should be considering measuring the potassium after as few as three treatments. I don't think that's what we keep to. My child who's needed what we call back-to-back, so these eight puffs three times in a row, and then another lot of them. I'm thinking then of potentially do I need an IV potentially for cause of mac of mac need to give magnesium or maybe to give them some fluid because they've been breathing out the, all this air vapor and if I'm doing that I'm going to measure the potassium so usually those things come together as being concurrent if you're doing an IV measure the potassium because you should only be doing an IV in a kid who's had lots of treatments who's probably going to be a little bit dehydrated. So the two, those all come together. And either that's this patient here that you've presented us, he'd probably get an IV from me right away. Does he need a potassium? Not really. He hasn't added his beta-2 agonist for whatever, 8 or 12 hours. But he probably needs hydration and he needs a safety line because he could crash on me.
0: Okay. So suffice to say, if a patient's on diuretics has severe diarrhea and you're giving multiple doses of beta agonists, you should definitely be thinking about hypokalemia. Absolutely. Okay. Let's move on then to hypotropium bromide, or in Canada, Atrovent is the most commonly used one. Dr. Mehta, how should we be giving Atrovent to kids with asthma in the ED? And what does the literature show about their efficacy?
1: So Atrovent is great in the acute asthma exacerbation for the patient who is of moderate or severe asthma severity using a PASS or PRAM score that's of concern. There's no evidence that it's a great maintenance therapy, um, a preventative therapy, and there's actually, interestingly, no good data to suggest that it has much value beyond three treatments. So most of our treatment algorithms are for the moderate to severe asthmatic who you're already planning on giving treatments to. You couple the Ventolin with the attrovent. We usually max out at a dose of four puffs of attrovent. Um, so pretty much all infants and children will get four puffs of Atrovent times three back-to-back, back, as Dennis said, with their three stacked doses of Ventolin if they're in that moderate to severe category Upfront, if there is benefit and there has been a response, then you're going to stretch them out. If there's no benefit or response and you need to give them further treatments, you're just going to continue with Ventolin on alone. But there's no data to suggest continuing to use Atrovent beyond those three. So
0: beta agonists with ipotropium bromide are more effective than beta agonists alone. In fact, in a systematic review and meta-analysis comparing the use of beta-agnes plus anticholinergics against beta-agnes alone, combination therapy was associated with significantly lower hospitalization rates and improvements in asthma scores as well as pulmonary function test results. So, three doses of ipotromium bromide added to beta-agnes are indicated for kids with moderate to severe asthma exacerbations in the ED. However, there's no clinical trial supporting ipotromium use beyond the first hour or three doses of beta agonists. Okay, so that's beta agonists and ipotromium bromide. How about steroids? Dr. Skolnick, what are the indications for giving steroids and how should we give them PO, IM, IV? I mean, in the adult, pretty much... Anyone who comes to the emergency department with asthma gets steroids because just by the fact that they're showing up in the emergency department with asthma means they're severe enough to get steroids. What about in kids? What's the indications?
2: We agree, get them in, get them in early, get it in lots. So to take that apart, um, it would be the rare repeat wheezer over the age of two years who doesn't need and doesn't get steroid early such that as Sanjay mentioned earlier, um, many um, EDs are setting up using the PRAM score to allow front-end caregivers, such as a triage nurse, to initiate steroid therapy even before they get to the doctor right early. So in anyone except the most severe, we would try oral. If they've been vomiting or if they vomit within 10 or 15 minutes, you can repeat the dose We would probably go on the best tasting, and we've done a taste test study. One of my colleagues at we actually make an in-house preparation of dexamethasone flavored with uh, chocolate cherry, and that won the taste test. So we go to dexamethasone as the go-to, but the commercially available prednisolone is certainly okay. So in dexamethasone, we give 0.3 milligrams per kilogramme. And for prednisolone, we give two milligrams per kilogram. Thereafter, we would give half that dose for several days. There is some literature which says that you can give a bigger dose, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram, which is factory dosage um, of dexamethasone. And because the biological half-life is 48 hours, that will actually cover the usual asthma exacerbation of three or four days. And you don't have to give any more steroid to go home with.
0: The latest study, which was published after we recorded this interview out of the Annals of EM, was entitled A Randomized Trial of Single Dose Oral Dexamethasone versus multidose prednisolone for acute exacerbations of asthma in children who attend the emergency department. Now it showed that a single dose of dexamethasone at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram orally compared to prednisolone dosed at 1 mg per kilogram for three days in 245 children with known asthma, had equivalent PRAM scores at day 4, and this is consistent with three previous RCTs, the largest of which dosed dexamethasone at 0.6 milligrams per kilogram PO. So it's reasonable to give one dose of dexamethasone at 0.3 or 0.6 milligrams per kilogram PO to all but the sickest of kids who present to the ED with asthma exacerbations, obviating the need for an outpatient prescription. And don't forget that dex tastes way better than prednisolone and it's also associated with less vomiting. Okay. My understanding is that the different routes of administration will have the same outcome benefit. When can you expect that benefit to occur? So let's say you give your steroids, you go and reassess the patient. Let's say you reassess them in an hour. Do you expect that the dexamethasone would have kicked in by then? Is it two hours, four hours? When do you expect that steroid to actually start working?
2: So steroid uh, starts kicking in between two and four hours and really it's it's in that time that you will have done your three back-to-back treatments two or three, you know, a couple of times, and if they're not improving, you're going to be worried about them. And that's one of the reasons that we don't use inhaled steroid as a therapy for acute exacerbations, because it, even delivering it right to where the problem is has
0: not been shown to have any advantage over the uh, PO or IV route. So again dexamethasone single dose 0.3 milligrams per kilogram or 0.6 milligrams per kilogram given as early in the ED visit as is feasible. Remember that it's as good as IV steroids and you'll see significant clinical benefits beginning at two hours after administration and they're most pronounced among the sickest of children. A Cochrane database review actually showed that it decreases the need for hospitalization, decreases the risk of relapse after initial treatment, and it may actually facilitate an earlier discharge from the hospital. Now, what about inhaled steroids? While there's no evidence that the use of inhaled steroids in the ED are beneficial, there is evidence that they decrease relapse rates in the outpatient setting. Dr. Skolden is now going to talk about the dangers of prescribing high dose inhaled steroids that we really need to be careful about the dose that we prescribe.
2: Interesting little factoid is that sending home children on inhaled steroid, fluticasone, of which there are many different strengths for each little canister, has been shown in numerous studies, including an observation study here in Canada, to lead to adrenal suppression with accompanying adrenal shock. So sending home a child on fluticasone, 250 micrograms per puff, which you shouldn't be doing, take a couple of puffs morning and evening can lead to ind- adrenal suppression. And we've had up to 20 kids over a couple of years who've presented an adrenal shock. So the dose for take home inhaled steroid is 100 micrograms twice a day, even for the moderately severe asthmatic.
0: So the maximum inhaled steroid dose that you want to give is the equivalent of fluticasone, 50 micrograms, two puffs, twice a day, maximum. Anything more and you run the risk of adrenal suppression and in some kids, even shock. So we will often send home kids until their uh, community
2: doctor changes it on a three to four week course of inhaled steroid. The old beta or beclomethazone you would be using about 100 micrograms four times a day with fluticasone, Flovent. You would use 100 micrograms twice a day for even moderately severe. And on people who we really are relatively confident that the diagnosis is asthma, this anti-inflammatory dose is thought to reduce the recidivism.
0: How many of those kids will come back? That's just mind-blowing. I've been sending kids home on 125 micrograms of Flovent two puffs BID. And just to clarify here, you're saying that there's multiple case reports of kids with adrenal suppression and shock from that dose. Correct. Wow, that's changed my practice.
2: The Canadian Pediatric Society runs several surveillance studies, uh, 8 or 10 a year, whereby every pediatrician in the country is invited to submit cases of these rare diseases. And one of those rare diseases that was looked into a couple of years ago was adrenal suppression with the use of inhaled steroid. And they gathered 15 or 18 cases over a couple of years.
0: Wow. Before we leave asthma, we just want to talk about discharge instructions, the ever so important discharge instructions for asthmatic patient, because we all know that these patients end up coming back to the eMERGE again and again and again, and much of the reason why they end up coming back is because they didn't get good discharge instructions the last time they were there. So, Dr. Mehta, could you just go over for us what discharge instructions you give patients who you're discharging from the emergency department with asthma?
1: So you have to give them a sense of the duration of the illness and that they may continue to wheeze, there may be ongoing respiratory concerns. You want to tell them to come back if there's significant work of breathing, um, excessive speed of breathing, inability to tolerate the medications, or that they're needing to use the medications more frequently than you've prescribed. It's important to tell them the importance of the steroids that have been prescribed. So if they're taking a dose of dexamethasone to go, they need to know to take that um, to prevent them from having a recurrence of the disease that leads them back to the eMERGE. You have to tell them to use the beta-2 agonist like the salbutamol on a regular basis. Um, it can be given up to every four hours, depending on how comfortable the family is with previous use. If they find that they're needing it more frequently and you gauge that they can recognize the signs at which point they're going to need further management, you're going to tell them to come back or see a healthcare professional. Um, So definitely anybody who is using Ventolin more than every four hours on a regular basis implies that the severity of the disease is bad enough that they need to see someone or come back sooner.
2: The Um, way that I often say it, um, the way I describe it for parents is, this is a drug you're giving every four hours. If you have to cheat once in the middle of the night and give
1: it at the two-hour mark, that's great. If you have to keep cheating, you should come back. It's important to tell them that the medicine won't work unless you're using it with the spacer. You have to make sure that the mask is appropriately fitted and that they understand the importance of the technique. Because you could be using this medication, and we've seen this many times, for multiple sessions and not actually be getting any of the medication properly. And so if you have an opportunity or your nursing team or your respiratory therapist to show them or else at the pharmacy, we actually would have given them the puffer and the arrow chamber that they used in the ED to go. It's not as good quality as the ones that you can buy proprietarily, but at least it's something that I'm giving them in addition to the prescription for more. I definitely want to give them a bit of an action plan so that they understand the hard stops with which they should be coming back. So as Dennis said, if if they're so-called cheating more frequently, then they're going to need to get seen sooner. Otherwise, um, they need to follow up with their regular physician. It's important also to emphasize to the family that if they're on a inhaled bronchodilator and inhaled steroid and they're giving them at the same time, that they should give the bronchodilator before the inhaled steroid so that it enhances delivery of that a- example fluticasone after the Ventolin dose. Um, in the morning and the evening. It's also important for infants who are more likely to get thrush and other um, candidal issues to clean the mouth and the tongue after giving the inhaled steroids. And as was alluded to early, depending on the dose, depending on how severe their asthma is, it's a nice opportunity to encourage the family to seek more Care if needed, in other words, if this is the fifteenth episode of asthma, they're not taking their medications appropriately or they are taking it, but they're just very brittle and coming in and out. Um, either you as the merge doc or referring them to the regular doctor to get them to see an asthma clinic is also a good idea.
0: Dr. Skolnick, do you have a quick list of discharge pearls
2: i uh, I'm pretty graphic when I write what they should come back for. And I say panting, grunting, breathing quickly, indrawing, and I point to the suprasternal, supraclavicular, intercostal, subcostal, seesawing tummy, vomiting, not drinking well, getting tired. I, I get very graphic and I write all of those down in lay terms so that they, I hope, have a very good idea of the things that would make us think their child's sick.
0: Absolutely. And do you guys have a handout for asthma discharge?
1: So we have some prescripted discharge instructions that we can tweak and adjust depending on um, the situation of the family. We also have some uh, online resources that we print out and and give them links to. And we also um, have uh, used videos for teaching in the ED as well and, and have some websites that we can suggest onward to families who uh, need to get comfortable with using these bronchodilators and, and steroids and, and chambers as well.
0: So your discharge instructions should include a written asthma action plan with medications and signs to look out for that would necessitate a return to the ED. The patient should continue the use of short-acting beta agonists such as salbutamol every four hours until exacerbations resolve, and then as needed, with directions to see a healthcare professional if therapy is needed more often than every four hours. For all but the mildest of asthma patients seen in the ED, a prescription for three weeks of inhaled steroids, such as fluticasone, 50 micrograms, two puffs, twice a day, is required. Remember to review techniques for using inhaled asthma medications, as well as for cleaning and maintaining the inhaler devices. Parents must understand that they need to use the MDI spacer and that the mask fits properly. They also have to understand to use the beta agonist before the inhaled steroid and to wash the mouth out after the steroid inhaler to prevent thrush. And don't forget to ensure that there's follow-up with the patient's primary care physician or local asthma clinic to review asthma control, environmental history, and symptom recognition.
2: I hasten to say that with our pediatric definition, two wheezing, three wheezing episodes that responded to a beta-2 agonist, In a child older than a couple of years, 15% of Canadian children have asthma. With a first-degree relative who has eczema, allergies, hay fever, or asthma, your chance of this wheeze being asthma is 40%. And in the adult world, 1% of people have asthma. So most people are going to grow out of it towards puberty at the latest or late childhood. So people need to hear that as well because they can be freaked
0: out sometimes. That's a great tip. So we've talked about discharging the patient who we've stabilized in the emergency department. Let's get back to our case of the 10-year-old who's now getting worse. So you give this boy continuous Ventolin and Atrovent plus oral dexamethasone, 0.6 milligrams per kilogram. And an hour later, he's worse, much worse. He's now setting 86% on continuous Ventolin nebs and he's starting to tire. His GCS is 14 and the nurse asks what you want to do next. So Dr. Skolnick how do you manage this patient now?
2: This is a child who I thought was sick before, and now I'm really very convinced that he's sick. For me now, this child needs an intravenous line started. I would consider repeating the intravenous steroid as hydrocortisone, five milligrams per kilogram, or methylprednisolone, one milligram per kilogram. I would probably give him a bolus of 20 mLs per kilo of normal saline on the presumption that he's a little bit of There's a little bit of dehydration from his working so hard. But where we really want to get to is I would now be considering a dose of magnesium sulfate. Some protocols using this drug for asthma call for a fluid bolus as described before anyway to prevent the commonest side effect, which is hypotension. When I'm taking the blood, I would be looking at his potassium status and then I would start 40 milligrams per kilogram of magnesium sulfate over about 15 to 20 minutes, watching for hypotension. I would be considering a respiratory therapist to come and absolutely make sure that I'm delivering everything in the best possible way via the lungs, getting ready for a potential rapid sequence intubation. Always good to be a step ahead of your patient, have the equipment out ready, the introducer in the ET tube, three sides of ET tube ready, the laryngoscope blades working, suctions available at the bedside. If you're desperate, you're not sure if your drugs are getting in, you can't get a quick IV, you're on the fly, remember that epinephrine, if you are really worried about a patient, you're busy getting your other modalities and help uh, available and on board, you can give intramuscular epinephrine while you're waiting. Same doses as in allergy, and um, it can be a lifesaver. And um, finally, whether we do have the option in our setting to consider high-flow oxygen, that also might obviate the need for uh, intubation in severe asthmatics. And I would be contacting ICU about whether this child might have to come to them or looking at the weather outside and deciding what kind of airplanes or ambulances I have got. This is a very worrying child. The silent chest is bad news.
0: So Dr. Skolnick, That's a great outline for what we're now going to talk about, which is the individual medications for the really sick asthmatic. Let's talk more specifically about the different medications. So first, magnesium. You know, in adults, we give magnesium for preeclampsia, sometimes for torsade de point, sometimes for alcohol-dependent patients. What does the evidence show for magnesium in severe asthmatics? And should we be giving it IV or via NEB?
1: So magnesium is really the next phase in game-changing asthma therapies. Um, it's already being used quite frequently in pediatrics in the IV form as a rescue therapy from ICU admission, um, potentially even to rescue them from inpatient admission, depending on how early you get it in to the patient. So it's a smooth muscle relaxant, it helps uh, with bronchodilation, it works differently than the beta-2 agonist, and so it's a nice adjunct. The surveys consistently show that a lot of users do turn to it a bit too late in the game. The best data is suggesting that the earlier use of it, especially in a patient who already was moderately or severely ill to start off with, um, and doesn't improve with first three or first six back-to-back Ventolin's plus or minus Atrovent is probably the ideal candidate. So IV uh, magnesium has good evidence in pediatrics. Inhaled magnesium is very exciting. I just think that the data is quite not there yet. If you do use magnesium
2: earlier, you can even send children home. Yeah. Um, it used to be in my mind that if once I've had to use magnesium, I would have had to admit the patient. So this is a, a part of our movement to using it earlier in the less severe patients who then we might be able to turn around, observe for a couple of hours and send home.
1: The catch is is that currently it's IV. And so there's still a bit of a hesitancy in the not that bad asthmatic to use something that might prevent admission, but requires an IV. So there's an ongoing issue. But I think if you pick the right patient where they are moderate to start off with, moderate after three to six masks, I think that's the perfect patient to use it, and you might save them from admission.
0: So not only do we have to give steroids early, we should be giving magnesium early as well. Yeah. So when it comes to IV magnesium sulfate for asthma in kids, a meta-analysis suggests that the use of magnesium sulfate resulted in improved outcomes for both adults and children, improving respiratory function and decreasing hospital admissions. So what are the indications for IV magnesium sulfate? We should be considering it in cases of moderate and severe asthma with incomplete response to conventional therapy during the first one to two hours. A common error is to delay the use of magnesium sulfate beyond the two-hour mark. Now, the most common adverse effect is hypotension, and this can be avoided by infusion of the dose over 20 minutes and giving a fluid bolus prior or during the magnesium infusion. Now, if there's a delay to obtaining an IV, magnesium sulfate can be given IO or by inhaled nebulizer. So what about the evidence for nebulized mag? Well, it's not that strong. However, there is an RCT called the magnetic trial, which came out in 2013 of about 500 children, which showed that magnesium sulfate 2.5 milliliters of the 250 millimol per liter solution given Q20 minutes times three, which was added to the salbutamol and the ipotropium bromide nebulizer in the first hour, significantly improved asthma severity scores without any increase in adverse events. Next in the laundry list of possible meds we can give in the severe asthmatic is Heliox. Any role for Heliox in the sphincter tightening context of a crashing asthmatic?
1: Yeah, I I feel that Heliox um, has great potential, but it hasn't really borne out in the data that I've seen. The other challenge is that you can only get to a maximum FiO2 of 30%. And a lot of the children who have bad asthma and are uh, impending... Into respiratory failure, are going to have PCO2s in the 60s or respirates in the 60s and are going to need oxygenation. So, Mm -hmm. I feel that it's a temporizing strategy. You're going to be engaging your ICU consultants at this point, anyways, and you're likely better served by the alternative strategies that we've got, like high flow and, and BiPAP, before you turn to Heliox.
0: Yeah, so Dr. Mehta's opinion here seems to be consistent with the Canadian Pediatric Society guidelines for managing the patient with acute asthma exacerbation and that, according to them, using a helium-oxygen gas mixture, i.e. Heliox, should be reserved for children in the ICU setting with severe asthma exacerbation who have failed to improve despite maximized therapy. Most of us would agree that if you're going to be performing an RSI on a patient with asthma, which we want to avoid at all costs, we'll talk about that in a bit, we're going to be using ketamine. Now, more and more in the adult emerge, we've been using ketamine for pain control, for delayed sequence intubation, for all kinds of different indications. How about using ketamine in the severe asthmatic to avoid intubation? Dr. Mehta, is there any literature to suggest that ketamine can help stave off intubation in severe asthmatics?
1: So my short answer is no. I think there's not strong literature. There's definitely no consensus. There are a few case reports and case series that have described successes using it in children who were pre-respiratory failure. Um, It seems like an appealing concept. The, The challenge is the consistency the dose the backup strategies that you would have so I once again feel that if you have a crashing asthmatic who is going to need ventilatory support uh, turning to non-invasive strategies is your best bet and engaging the intensive care service or transport to get them to that referral center is a focus that you should take rather than turning to ketamine which unfortunately so far has been unproven
0: there's three studies that we'll have in the written summary and the show notes on using ketamine in severe asthmatics to avoid intubation in kids and the take home message is that we need more convincing evidence before we can recommend it routinely to avoid intubation However, it is safe at dissociative doses and is a reasonable option when all other measures have failed. Okay, so let's just back up a bit and talk about why we want to avoid intubation in the first place, and then we can move on with other strategies to avoid intubation. So, Dr. Skolnick, why do we want to do everything we can to avoid intubating a child with asthma?
2: There are several points here. One is that they're difficult to extubate. And then the other one is that they're difficult to ventilate. And the third point is that when you do use the higher pressures that you need to ventilate these children, you can often cause barotrauma such as pneumothorax and subcutaneous emphysema. So it's really almost a perfect storm of all the things that we don't want to happen. And it is better to use all the non-invasive strategies that you can, very intensive setup, watch them very carefully and try and avoid it for those reasons.
1: I'd add that um, circulatory collapse is a big issue as well because of the strain with the increased intrathoracic pressure. So you do need to actively fluid resuscitate these patients, but even with ridiculously aggressive fluid resuscitation, intubating an asthmatic, they can still crash and go into full respiratory failure or arrest, um, even with fluids on board.
0: So let's just say that we want to avoid intubation at all, all costs. What is the role of BiPAP then in situations like this
1: one where we want to avoid intubation? So I think if you have maximized all your strategies, you've gotten the steroids in early, you've got the IV fluids in early, you've gotten the inhaled Ventolin and the Atrovent early, you've tried magnesium once, maybe even twice, you've tried fluid resuscitating them, you've looked at their gas and you've trended a, a worsening direction, um, you are probably at the point where you may be getting into impending respiratory failure with this patient, then your options at this point are really high flow or BiPAP. Now, when it comes to
0: non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, a few case reports and observational studies of the use of BiPAP in pediatric asthma have shown a bit of promise. The one RCT of only 20 patients does show a benefit in clinical asthma scores, respiratory rate, and supplemental oxygen needed. However, while intuitively sensible, there is no evidence that non invasive positive pressure ventilation prevents the need for intubation in children with status asthmaticus. As with other rescue measures, BiPAP can be considered when all other measures have failed. Another way of providing a bit of non invasive positive pressure ventilation that seems to be becoming popular among the pediatricians at our hospital is high flow nasal oxygen or humidified high flow nasal cannula therapy. Now the evidence is conflicting for this and most studies were done in kids with bronchiolitis rather than asthma. One study from pediatric emergency care in 2012 did show that the use of high flow nasal oxygen reduced the need for intubation in pediatric acute respiratory failure, but there was no change in mortality or ICU length of stay. On the flip side, a Cochrane review in 2014 based on 11 studies concluded that no evidence could be found to allow determination of the safety or effectiveness of high-flow nasal cannula therapy in children. And finally, the latest study out of Emergency Medicine Journal concluded that high-flow nasal cannula may have a role, but that about one-third of patients required BiPAP or intubation. So again, this is a therapy that you can reach for if all else has failed, and if it's available in your hospital. So putting it all together for the child who comes in with a very severe asthma exacerbation. Here we go. Obtain IV access and draw blood work, including electrolytes and a VBG, with particular attention to the potassium. Call your RT and pediatric intensivist early on. You're going to be starting continuous salbutamol nebulizers with the first three NEBs having ipotromium bromide as well. You'll give IV steroids, methylprednisolone, one milligram per kilogram, or hydrocortisone, five milligrams per kilogram. You want to give an IV normal saline bolus of 20 milliliters per kilogram preferably before you give the magnesium. Then for the magnesium, you want to give IV, magnesium sulfate, 40 milligrams per kilogram to a maximum of 2 grams over 20 minutes within the first hour if possible. Remember that early administration is key. So those are the evidence-based treatments. Now we're getting into the territory of the treatments that don't have strong evidence but that you may consider in the patient who isn't improving. First, consider epinephrine, 0.01 milligrams per kilogram IM, as well as nebulized magnesium, especially if you're having trouble obtaining IV access. Consider BiPAP or high-flow nasal oxygen, which may help to prevent having to do an RSI. You want to be sure to prepare for an RSI which we generally, of course, want to avoid in the asthmatic because of barotrauma and decreased venous return. If you need to go to RSI, then ketamine is the preferred induction agent. And if you're preparing for RSI, you really need to watch for signs of tiring and have a good backup plan. Finally, ask your intensivist if they want to give Heliox or IV cellbutamol and get it ready if they do. Let's get on to the disposition of the asthmatic. So, generally, the admission criteria for asthma in kids is ongoing need for supplemental oxygen, persistent increased work of breathing, beta agonists that are needed more often than every few hours, the patient deteriorating while on systemic steroids, and other things to take into consideration might be the distance from home, comorbid conditions like anaphylaxis, etc. Some discharge criteria from the ED include needing beta agonists less often than every few hours, a reading of 0 uh, 2 sat of 94% on room air or more, and minimal or no signs of respiratory distress with improved air entry. Dr. Skolnick, what pearls can you tell us about how you decide beyond these basic things which kids can go home and which kids can stay? Let's say you're on the fence about whether or not to admit a pediatric patient who's suffered from an asthma exacerbation. What are the factors we should consider when it comes to deciding whether to admit or discharge the patient?
2: So I think that if a child has an ongoing need, clear need for supplemental oxygen, and it's something obviously they can't get at home, then I think uh, that's clear. What I often will do is if they have no severe history of very frequent visits to ED, intubation or ICU, in other words, they're on the moderate side of the spectrum and I have opened them up with treatment, I will probably see if they stretch to 90 to 120 minutes, good social circumstances, good support, good understanding, I will consider discharging those patients. The flip side is if they've had a bad history before, I want to keep them in the emerge for the three to four hours since their last treatment with beta-2 agonist before getting them home because I don't know that they won't deteriorate at hour three, four, or five at home. I do get very graphic in in describing and writing to clarify what I mean by worsening, uh, especially if they came in late this current admission. Um, But otherwise, I think you've captured it pretty much.
0: So let's bring it all home with the review. First, a lack of risk factors does not confer a lack of risk in pediatric asthma. So even if they've never had a previous life-threatening exacerbation, an ICU admission, deterioration while on steroids, or have comorbid conditions, they can still crash in your ED. The PASS score consists of only a few variables, wheezing, air entry, work of breathing, prolongation of expiration, and mental status. It's a reliable and validated tool for assessing risk. Now, VBGs are seldom indicated unless the child has no clinical improvement with maximal therapy, and it's most useful as a baseline after ED treatment in a patient who's going to the ICU. And remember that while a PaCO2 of more than 50 is a risk factor for impending respiratory failure, a normal partial pressure of CO2 could still indicate badness. As far as chest x-rays in asthma go, there's no real good set of indicators that can accurately identify children likely to have abnormalities on chest x-ray. And even if the child is a first-time wheezer, a chest x-ray is not routinely indicated. What about treatments? MDI with spacer is at least as good as NEBS, if not better. They're more efficient. They're less prone to spreading infection in your ED. Parents like it better and should probably be used in all children except those under one year of age and those who are too sick to activate the valve on the MDI. In terms of whether to give intermittent or continuous therapy, continuous therapy is recommended for moderate and severe exacerbations. For kids less than 15 kilograms, give 4 puffs times 3 back-to-back, and for kids greater than 15 kilograms, give 8 puffs times 3 back-to-back. And don't forget the 4 puffs of ipotropium bromide times 3, alternating with the first set of salbutamol puffs in all your moderate exacerbations, and give it via NEB along with the salbutamol at 250 micrograms in the sick kids who can't tolerate the MDI. Now, what about steroids? The latest literature suggests that a single dose of 0.3 or 0.6 milligrams per kilogram of oral dexamethasone is at least as effective as multiple doses of prednisolone and as good as IV steroids. It has less vomiting associated with it and ensures compliance. Now, don't forget to prescribe an inhaled steroid for all but the mildest cases. And never prescribe more than the equivalent of 100 micrograms BID of fluticasone, Flovent in Canada, because you certainly don't want the child coming back in adrenal shock. Now what about the really sick kid in the resuscitation room with severe asthma exacerbation? All these kids, in addition to salbutamol, ipotropium, and steroids, should get IV- or at least nebulized MAG early on with a normal saline bolus to prevent hypotension. And consideration should be given to high flow nasal cannula oxygen or BiPAP, IM epinephrine in the same dose that we give for anaphylaxis, subdissociative dose ketamine, IV cell butamol, and if they're going to the unit, heliox. Now that's a lot of information. I encourage you to go to the EM Cases website blog post for this podcast to review the material to help burn the stuff into your huge brains. And if you're looking to brush up on pediatric EM in general, the second free EM Cases Digest interactive ebook, Pediatric Emergencies, will be released on May 4th, 2016 during the Emergency Medicine Update Conference in Toronto. You'll be able to get your free download from the EM Cases website after that. So, until next time, I'll leave you with this month's quote of the month from Isaac Asimov. Knowledge is not only power, it is happiness. And being taught is the intellectual analog of being loved. Take it easy.